Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick, and joining me today is my medical director, Rob Dixon. Good afternoon, Casey. The smirks on our face. This is admittedly a take two. We ran out of card data, and we talked and talked and talked, and nothing was recorded. So let's try this take two and really return to one of our favorite pieces of the podcast that we've done over the entirety of it, and that's our Serial Killer series, one of the most well-received from a number of listeners standpoint and honestly it's changed the way that we've taught our medics to respond both mentally and on scene and this comes from a disconnect that you and I have both seen from the fact that we're taught disease processes. I have a slide in one of our lectures about serial killers from the table of contents of a medic textbook respiratory and it goes obstructive lung disease, lung cancer, pulmonary embolus, pneumonia, and it's all these diagnoses. And how does the patient, what do they tell us when they, they call? They, they usually don't call 911 for a medic response with a PE, right? We, we start with the symptom. That's why we always teach you should focus initially on what the patient is most concerned about. Chest pain, shortness of breath, abdominal pain, altered mental status, those, and, and look for the top five killers diagnoses within that. As we did those four episodes, in each episode, there was a little caveat. If you go back and listen, I would urge you, if you've not, to take a listen to those. We're proud of those. But each one of those episodes was primarily medically focused. In each one, we said, well, we're not really going to talk about trauma today. In the back of my mind, I knew we needed a trauma serial killers episode, but it seemed like too big of a lift. So just like that to-do list, you leave the ones you don't want to do at the bottom. Trauma serial killers lived on the bottom of my list for, it's been a year, 18 months now. So as I was jogging the other day, I said, I'm making five. I'm going to go home and I'm going to pick five trauma serial killers. So for all the haters out there and the folks that want to argue, I'm happy to edit and amend this list. This is a made up five for our five trauma serial killers. This fits the five, though, that reflect our protocols, our immediate actions and the immediate life threats, I think from what we see, especially in Montgomery County, primarily blunt trauma. Some of this is system and location dependent, but we'll go with the five major trauma, immediate killers. So number one, hemorrhage. This is what you should be thinking as you're going to the call is that your go-to, if you were going to early anchor on anything, I would not make it on the zebra. I would make it on the horse in the room, which is hemorrhage in these bad trauma patients. Next would be some form of obstructive shock, most common for us, blunt trauma Montgomery County is tension pneumothorax could be uh, a hemopericardium or tamponade as well hypoxemia from a high c-spine injury remember three four five keeps the diaphragm alive if that cord gets injured at or below I'm sorry above that level then you're not going to drop your diaphragm for long you may have no other injuries you're asphyxiated it's fixed with a supraglottic airway a bag valve mask a tracheal tube Closed head injury is number four, uh, a cause of death for sadly for many of our blunt trauma patients. Remember, we'll hark back to avoiding hypotension, avoiding hypoxemia in these patients. It drastically increases their morbidity and mortality. And last, not necessarily immediate killer, but a big delayed killer, DIC or disseminated intervascular coagulation. So just Dr. Dixon's rhyme there, three, four, five, keep the diaphragm alive. If you're not familiar with that one, that's the cervical spine levels, the cervical uh, 
levels of injury. So at the third cervical vertebrae, fourth and fifth, those nerve roots supply the diaphragm. If you're injured at those levels or above, you can have diaphragm paralysis, diaphragm paresis, and be left to basically asphyxiate or suffocate. A classic example there in popular culture that we probably know about and have heard about, the original Superman, Christopher Reeves, was a uh, avid equestrian rider and fell off his horse, high C-spine injury, and ended up quadriplegic with a tracheostomy tube for the rest of his life. In his emergent care, not that I know anything about Christopher Reeves' EMS response, but I can imagine that early airway management and correction of his hypoxemia was probably vital to saving his life. And if you look at Christopher Reeves' life after his injury, while devastating, he had quite the impact and, and quite, the, quite the life post-injury. So where do we start with our serial killers? The point in this is not to really, we want you to remember the five killers. And when we do oral scenarios and run reviews, we're going to ask you the five killers. But the whole point of this was to sort of flip the script on our patients call us with complaints, not diseases. So when you're in route, thinking about the killer five diagnoses first gives you a window into where is your exam going to go? Where is your questioning going to go? What objective findings are you looking at on your vital signs, your blood sugar, your 12 lead? And what do I need to rule out first? And how do I need to reorganize these five? Vitals are vital. Don't forget the end title in trauma patients. That's one that, oh, that's obstructive lung disease and shark fin, doc. Yeah, but if you see that number trending downward in a trauma patient, that's a direct reflection of hypoperfusion, and that's increased mortality in that in that patient. PEDS patients are, are very important to consider here from a vital sign standpoint. Why? Because they get tachycardic and they get more tachycardic and they get more tachycardic and you're looking at their blood pressure and you're saying, oh, they're fine. They're not hypotensive. They compensate, they compensate, they compensate until they fall off a cliff. So beware of trauma and tachycardia in a pediatric patient. Watch for shock index in them especially. Look for your systolic, excuse me, your heart rate over your systolic pressure greater than one should be a warning sign, even if normotensive. Exam, you're going to have to focus it on bleeding. That's where your exam is going to go first. In, in, a, in a TBI standpoint, you're going to go to your neuro exam. I would just say that pupils are drastically overrated. If patients really have unequal fixed pupils, and you're probably looking more at non-survivable injuries, things like herniation and uh, really difficult situations, what we really should be focusing more on is honestly, their motor function, you know, do they follow commands? Do they move purposefully? And if they don't, when you start to decrease that motor score, that correlates really well with their morbidity, their mortality. Mind your scene time. It's a Montgomery County tenant that's been foundation that's laid long before we started here. Our scene times are excellent for both our blunt and our penetrating trauma patients. We've got three well-positioned level two trauma centers, high functioning within the county that really help us out here. So if you're in a rural environment, if you're a HEMS medic, if you're somewhere where, you know, you're in Western Australia where you're three hours from civilization, then scene time may not make as much difference. And the evidence tells us that as we get out past that half an hour mark, it probably doesn't make as much difference as we think. But our scene times here, for the most part, are going to be 30 minutes or less. So if they are, we are believers in that golden half an hour that still exists and getting our patients to definitive care the scalpel, the operating room, the open thoracotomy, the massive uh, level one infuser, and, and, and massive blood transfusions. And just, just to clarify, our scene times here, 
less than 10 minutes. Excuse I think me. we had a, we had a misspoke. Yeah, I mean our our scene and transport. So we we divide our total patient contact time. Sorry, that's good for the listeners out there. I misspoke. Scene times less than less than 10 minutes total bundle of care time from the time of patient contact till the time of op, of ED intervention 30 minutes. Yeah, 20 to 30 minutes is our general total total patient care time here in the county just for reference sake and the non-mchd listeners out there lastly we have to think about being able to control our trauma patients these patients are often intoxicated they often have traumatic brain injury they can be hypoxic so there's that combination of medical trauma delirium that can exist if there's intoxicants on board that can worsen both of those situations some of the charts that we've reviewed that we've really struggle with are these ones where the medic has the patient that's fighting them with a GCS of 12 that's pulling out lines with a, with a SAD of 87 and a scalp hematoma. So you've got a potential hypoxia. You've got p- potential you know, alcohol or other substances on board. You've got the potential for traumatic brain injury, and you can't get an IV. You can't get a blood pressure. You can't keep uh, you know, a three-lead on. You can't get a sugar. Those are the patients we talked about on our Ketamine for Control podcast. I'd refer you back to that one for a longer discussion. But we really have to control those patients and balance risk-benefit to be able to control and assess them. And our preferred agent here at MCHD is is Ketamine for those folks. Couldn't agree more. And that's really, we'll go ahead and, and make our statement. I hear folks say ketamine is hemodynamically stable. I, I don't like that statement. It's just the least hemodynamically unstable. All, all sedatives have some negative hemodynamic consequence. It's just the least hemodynamically compromising. So we prefer it for trauma. I think that's fairly standard in the EM, EMS world. Sure. So let's, let's roll into number one. And we've talked about this really ad nauseum recently uh, with some of the whole blood push here in, in Texas. And that's, that's hemorrhage. Hemorrhage should be one, two, and three, like you said, for your serial killers and trauma. And your first focus to be your exam, where you're going to look and think through all the spots blood can hide. Where can the blood go? It can go into the chest. It can go into the, abdom- the abdominal cavity. It can go into the pelvis. It can go into the long bone soft tissue spaces. It can fall out onto the ground. So first and foremost, if it's on the ground, figure out where it's coming from, apply pressure. If it's in an extremity, Get a tourniquet on high and tight above that injury. Use your stop the bleed tenants. And we do a really good job of using our tourniquets, using you know, our quick clot, our combat gauze here in the, in the district. Get those tourniquets on, get them on quickly, get them on tight. As far as the chest, abdomen, and pelvis, that's one where our exam is going to be key. We're going to listen. Do we hear breath sounds? Is there tire marks over the left side of the chest with crepitus? Do we have signs of flail chest and and paradoxical breathing? That's pretty rare, but we see that every now and again. Abdominal bruising and rigidity, those those should be of high concern. If you've got somebody that's got bad blunt trauma and you think there's an abdominal injury, that pelvic binder should probably go on, but make sure that you apply it properly. Make sure that it's good and snug. And if somebody's shot in the chest, they probably don't need a pelvic binder because their pelvis is probably fine. So make sure we're applying it to the right blunt trauma patients with mechanism and pain to suggest there could be injury there. What about ultrasound? Talk a little about ultrasound for pneumothorax and, and tension pneumo. We'll get to that in a second, but ultrasound for hemothorax, ultrasound for hemoperitoneum. 
So I'm going to I'm going to speak strictly from an MCHD perspective. As as Casey said, we have three equidistant trauma centers throughout a, a very large service area, but really there's no time savings. When we look at these decisions, it's not a, a question of could we do it, could we train for it, but should we do it? And I think that at some point, depending on on how far you are, if you're that flight medic out in Western Australia and you got a three hour, then maybe it would change some of your therapy. But for us, that hemoperitoneum we would discover, uh, the, the lung sliding that we would discover is not really going to change our therapy. We're going to treat the potential tension pneumothorax if that's the, the potential diagnosis with some pleural drainage of some sort. Uh, so it won't really change our therapeutic plan for the patient and my, my real problem with it is it will increase our transport times. These are not procedures that can really be done well in the back of a moving ambulance. And I think if you bring them in, you bring in, in more risk to delay that, that crucial transport time for source control. And we have butterfly ultrasound access on our district chiefs vehicles. We are not ultrasound opponents. We are waiting for evidence to show change in outcomes with pre-hospital application of the devices. Declining end tidal. We talked about end tidal initially a little bit when we talked about our vitals in a hemorrhage patient. Declining end tidal is declining perfusion. That should be a huge warning sign. Uh, Childress from pre-hospital emergency care in 2018 showed that mortality and end tidal CO2 are inversely proportional. So um, uh, if you see it going down, then you should be concerned about your mortality rates going up. Uh, TXA is our internal tourniquet. Make sure we're getting the two grams from the new TCCC guidelines in. That's one where we really don't want to delay seam times for that. But as we're moving towards the hospital, we want to work towards whether IV or IO, getting those two grams started, that therapeutic momentum push forward to, you know, in the hospital treatments. Coming soon, we've said this before, we'll say it again, keeping our eyes and ears open for freeze-dried plasma. Let's roll into obstructive shock or serial killer trauma number two. So the most common, the two... The most common of the two, so we went to tension pneumothorax and some type of hemopericardium causing a, a pericardial tamponade. We'll focus more time on the tension pneumothorax because it's the most common. Any hemopericardium in a, a blunt, particularly in a blunt trauma patient, is really not a terribly survivable injury. You think about it, if you decelerate fast enough to rip your aorta off of you, the the base of your heart or the I'm sorry, the top of your heart to spill blood into your pericardium, uh, that's not a terribly survivable injury. And I'm not a fan of this three-hole punch that's been uh, promoted for that. So focusing on tension pneumothorax, what are we going to see? We're going to see it's, it's a spectrum of disease. So early on, it may just be some abnormal chest findings, some bruising of the chest, some crepitus. Maybe you hear ab absent breath sounds. Maybe there's associated hypoxemia. Remember, as air from a ripped lung enters, you take a breath in, air enters the pleural cavity, it co the lung collapses. But then ultimately, if that air can't get out, it compresses first the low-pressure side of the heart, the right side impairing preload, and then ultimately the left side. So you have lung and uh, respiratory compromise before you have complete cardiovascular compromise. Remember, because it does in attention pneumothorax, just the physiology 
of a bad tension pneumothorax. It doesn't happen immediately. It happens over a period of time. The patient may be more distressed. They may uh, have altered mental status. They may have hypoxemia and developing into some hemodynamic instability. Remember, preload is your friend, right? Preload the right side of the heart in either any obstructive uh, physiology, and it buys us time to get the patient to definitive care. There's no magic in these two diseases of a tracheal tube, right? If the patient has blunt chest trauma, a SAT of 50 and suspected obstructive shock, paralyzing them and intubating is only going to potentially harm them a lot more than it's going to help them. What do we need to do? We need to make the diagnosis of a potential for attention pneumothorax and do a pleural decompression. On a live patient here at MCHD, we do that fourth or fifth uh, intercostal space uh, mid-axillary line. Uh, some places teach it still with the uh, second interspace uh, midclavicular line. There's, In, yeah, there's more and more evidence accumulating there that our accuracy from a needle thoracostomy standpoint is poor in general. But if we want to get it in the thorax, we're much more likely in the fourth to fifth space, mid-axillary mid or anterior axillary line. And I'll note, note that reference in the show notes. Yeah, and just think about the, the tissue planes that you're going through. If, you're, if the patient's supine on their back, and they've got air in their chest, where is it laying? It's laying anteriorly. So a lot of times I see this procedure, I see it kind of shoved in there and then the, the, the needle bit is pulled out and the little flimsy catheter is what stays in. Uh, and it's, it's done in such a way that if, if there were a sliver of air there, you went right through it and into the lung parenchyma. So just mind those tissue planes that you're going through, through the intercostal muscles, and you really, your goal is to just puncture the uh, the pleura of the chest wall and enter the pleural space, you can evacuate uh, the air that's there that's compromising the circulation. Uh, remember, it's a spectrum of disease, so simple things, you know, foundational basic life support and basic airway support, good suctioning, uh, non-rebreather mass, BVM, you know, these type of airway adjuncts are always incredibly helpful. And then, like you said, if they're if they're in arrest here at MCHD, we train and credential and train and credential and train and credential on simple thoracostomy, uh, finger thoracostomy procedure. We'll link our experience, our our uh, peer reviewed uh, evidence for that in the show notes as well. And then, lastly, from a pericardial tamponade standpoint, much much more rare. In, in blunt trauma in higher penetrating trauma populations you're going to see more if you have trauma to the box test question alert bex triad muffled heart tones hypotension tachycardia and jvd uh, are is the triad know that that's fairly rare about probably only one in six or seven of those patients really have bex triad but knowing those combinations it's important that will help you get to the diagnosis but again if you've got your aorta torn from the root of the uh, apex of the heart you're probably uh sticking a needle in it is not terribly helpful no and and without ultrasound guidance we know those needles end up in stomachs and livers and lungs a lot more often than they truly end up in the pericardial space hypoxemia is one that we can address and take care of really quickly especially when we're talking about traumatic arrest or traumatic peri-arrest can come from multiple causes in trauma the most treatable one though really like we talked about initially is that high cervical spine injury from diaphragm paralysis, but it can also be from tension pneumo, 
So if you've got mechanism, decreased breath sounds, tachycardia, hypotension, pointing towards tension pneumo, then treat it. The patient is alive. We want to needle that fourth to fifth space, uh, mid-axillary, anterior-axillary line. Consider that high C-spine high injury. That's, again, going to be mechanism-related. Can happen in both penetrating and blunt traumas, depending on where that injury occurs. There's no magic to an endotracheal tube that will necessarily fix that unstable C-spine injury, but it augments the diaphragm effort that's been lost. The key is going to be to correct the hypoxia. We know that whether that occurs with a BVM, whether that occurs with a supraglottic airway, whether that occurs with an endotracheal tube, that's the key. And we shouldn't get fixated on a tube. We should get fixated on that hypoxia and fix it, for lack of a better term. And then we know that the more mucking around that we do in the field, this is from uh, Journal of Trauma and Acute Care 2021, just last year, the number of field procedures as they go up, the survival goes down. So not that we shouldn't make life-saving, life-affecting decisions quickly and act on that tension pneumo. It's just as we go from decompression to IO to endotracheal tube, as we start adding on top of these things, it goes back to one of, one of my favorite saying of yours, and that is just because we can do something doesn't mean that we should. We have to mind our seating time, our distance to the hospital, and what definitive care truly is. What about closed head injuries? Talk about EPIC a little bit, and this is one that we really know we can, we can play a major role here if we prevent some things. Right. We know that hypoxemia is bad in brain-injured patients. We know that hypotension is bad in brain-injured patients. If you put those two together, even one episode of either one of those, either hypoxemia or hypotension, the, the, the morbidity, the mortality goes up just skyrockets in these patients. So I can't say enough times how, how we should really pay, be paying attention to their oxygenation in these patients and mining their hemodynamics. Correct, even prevent hypoxemia. So I, I think a way for uh, EM and EMS providers is to look at the mechanism. You know, as Casey said, start from the beginning of the call and anticipate. If you have someone who has been uh, on a motorbike running from the police with no helmet and they get ejected and they fly 100 feet down the road into a hard roadway, I would anticipate they're going to have a brain injury and I would anticipate they're going to have some hypotension from lots of broken things. So, so, so let's take that. Let me take that patient and you load that patient in your truck and the SAT's 99 and the blood pressure's 120. I'm a nervous wreck. Or as my dad says, nervous is a cat. I'm going to get access. I'm going to have fluids and push dose ready. I'm going to put the rule of 15s in place. Even if I'm not intubating that patient, let's say their GCS is make it 12 or make it eight or make it seven. Let's say that they're protecting their airway and they're not hypoxic and you elect to rapid transport. That patient should still have rule of 15s in place. 15 nasal cannula, 15 face mask or bag, whichever you need. 15 of PEEP potentially, depending on blood pressure, you have to balance with there. With the head of the bed up 15. Head of the, bed, fifth, head of the bed 15 if they can tolerate it. That way you're preventing the hypoxia that you know may come You've got your hypotension prevention mixed and ready, so you're proactive and not reactive. And that brings us to push dose and trauma. A question that I get quite a bit is push dose okay? For us in the short term, as a bridge, there's no evidence for this, really, but I feel like the answer is yes. You can agree or disagree. There is some emerging data for vasopressin in trauma. Uh, JAMA surgery 2019, they had 100 patients 
and the patients that went on low dose vasopressin received half the blood products as the non-vasopressin patients. So sort of sacrilege in the surgical world to talk about pressors in a patient that's bleeding, but to preserve the brain in that short-term time period, not that we want to put people on epi drips that are bleeding to death, not that we want to get them to the hospital and keep them on an epi drip and not transfuse them, but if you can augment brain perfusion in that 20 minutes of time we're transporting them with 20 mics of push-dose epi, me personally, that's something I'm in favor of and I do in my own personal practice as I'm working towards surgical intervention, surgical definitive care, trauma resuscitation, massive transfusion protocols, autotransfusion, all of those things. Yeah, you, I would say it, it, it goes with, I think, without saying that absolutely I agree, especially if you're going to do a procedure, you're going to optimize to, you need to put a breathing tube in, you're going to, you want to give a paralytic, you need to anticipate decreasing cardiovascular function, hypotension in those patients, have push dose ready. Push dose in the, the run-of-the-mill trauma patient, I'm not as big of a fan if I haven't given blood first in the emergency department. Have I totally ruled it out uh, as an adjunct? No, I use a little push dose. I keep it out and ready. So if I can, as Casey said, if I can avoid or preserve brain by time, I do that. Uh, you can listen to the Blood Products podcast. It's another discussion, another where there is no clear answer, but I think what we, what we do agree on is that in these severely injured trauma patients, we should limit our, our, our uh, crystalloid fluids, either ringers or, or saline. Uh, we kind of agreed there's no perfect number, uh, but to uh, less than a liter, just to try to maintain some type of perfusion. Uh, and then don't be afraid to use push dose in those patients. I think back to my trauma attending at the University of Kentucky, and if I said the word vasopressin and trauma in the same sentence, I know that he would have physically tackled me. Form tackle, you know, lowered the shoulder uh, and just absolutely demolished me. But there is more, there is more and more data coming that there may be a role as a bridge and as an adjunct in some of these trauma patients. So while we're not saying put all these trauma patients on pressers, just, just when you think about Epic and how detrimental that hypotensive episode is to those traumatic brain injuries, there is probably a role in there somewhere for augmenting that pressure in the short term while we're getting to definitive care. Lastly, the more indolent of the five killers, but definitely in that first 24 hours, I know you've seen them. I've seen them get bad in the ED and pretty quickly. And when this happens, this is an absolute typhoon hurricane disaster. And that is uh, disseminated intravascular coagulopathy or DIC. This is a mess. And these are the patients that in every way you don't want them to, they're hypercoagulable and every way you don't want them to be, they're hypocoagulable. It's just a mix and a mess. And in these patients, what can we do in the emergency department to prevent this? One of the big things is keep them warm. Uh, cold patients get coagulopathic. So mind your, your warmer, mind the temperature of the truck when we're transporting these massive trauma patients. Minimize crystalloid. We've talked about this. There likely will be a cap on our crystalloid bolus here at MCHD at some point. We're tossing around the data and the idea and where the two of us fall in the middle uh, and the rest of the uh, Department of Clinical Services freeze-dried plasma. Come on, our, our podcast reminder that we're, we're we ready. We're still here. We're, we're ready. We're ready. <laughs> Don't forget to warn them. Again, cold trauma equals coagulopathy. Calcium for the deadly triad or the deadly diamond, depending on uh, which one of those you look at. There's a lot of 
sort of FOMAD and Twitter and uh, podcast discussion over the past year over over calcium in these folks, the lethal triad, acidosis, coagulopathy, and hypothermia, and within acidosis, within coagulation, within temperature maintenance, calcium plays a role really in all three. So there was an article that we'll link in the show notes that talks about adding hypocalcemia to the lethal triad to make it a diamond. The catch there is that rapid transfusion plays a role here because rapid transfusion sucks up our calcium relative to the EDTA and the preservatives that are used. So do I give calcium in my practice to massive transfusion patients? Yes, I absolutely do. And I do early. Does calcium belong before the rapid transfusion? During? At what dose? Those sort of detailed questions are the ones that we don't have the answer to yet. So are we giving our hemorrhagic shock trauma patients calcium here at MCHD yet? We're not without more evidence. In consideration, like everything else, absolutely. I'm glad you have this last one because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure that you talk about TEG because I can't even say it. Thromboelastrography? There you Is go. Is that pretty close? Yeah. But I, I don't know that I could tell you exactly how it works or exactly how do you interpret that data. And then that's the first question for you. The second one is, does it ever matter? Are you ever able to get any meaningful data out? Of it? I know you use it in one of the places where you, you work. Well, when I say use it, I'll put use in quotations. We gather tag data. I've watched every time I've ordered it. I've done it with, uh, in conjunction with our trauma surgeons, and I've seen it collected, and I don't know that I've seen it acted upon. Let me give you my best overview on thombo, thromboelastography or tag. And there's Rotem. There's some other variations on this. Basically, it's a graphical combined with numerical representation of active clotting and fibrinolysis, not to get too detailed. So instead of having a single INR to look at coag or a single platelet number to look at your platelet function or even a D-dimer or a fibrinogen level to think about fibrinolysis, it's an active clotting fibrinolysis representation in graphical form with numbers to correlate with that graph at different points along the clotting cascade and the fibrinolysis cascade. So in a continuum. So it's an effort to look at coagulation numbers, which we gather in all our trauma patients and follow in DIC patients. Those are snapshots. Teg is a movie, is the, is the general gist. More accurate, more actionable than standard static coag labs. The problem is, is that there's lots of secondary outcome-based TEG studies. There's no patient-oriented outcome-based TEG studies. And if there are, I'm, I'm, I try my best to stay up on EMS literature, EM literature, that's where I work. We're tangentially related to TEG, but for the surgery-focused folks out there, if I've missed something, I, I, I say this with the caveat that I could be wrong, but I've seen no mortality, morbidity, patient-oriented outcome-based studies showing that TEG improves outcomes. So that's something that's really more for the level one centers, the academic centers uh, out in the community, the level twos where, where you work, where I work. We, don't, we have this, but we don't use it regularly. Uh, I work in another level one, level two sort of uh, institution that has TEG. It was pushed upon us all, and it's gathered, and I don't know that I really see it acted upon. That's no knock on anyone. It's just... You know, data is only useful if you can if you can make action on it. So, TEG is something probably that's still TBD in in my best uh, assumption and and uh, kind of interpretation of how it's used. So let's let's take it home. What's I'll let you take number one here and take home points because this is yours. You, you this is, I've heard you say this since I met you the first time. Right. Always expose. You can't diagnose. You cannot treat. 
something you can't see. And so one of the first things that we should do in these patients is expose so we can expose their injuries and control, expose and control. So a traumatic delirium, a medical delirium, if you can't put a blood pressure cuff on, you can't do an intervention, you're not doing the patient any benefit. Those patients need immediate control. Our drug of choice here for that is ketamine IM, gain control, immediate monitoring, exposure, look for those serial killers that we've talked about in this podcast. Mind your scene time. Our scene times are vital here in Montgomery County. We have shorter scene times. We have quicker time to definitive care. That's massive transfusion. That's uh, surgical intervention. That's the scalpel, the thoracotomy, the laparotomy, the things that save the patients. Now, if your scene times start to creep out and your transport times, your total care times start to creep out past that 30 minutes, then this is a much murkier discussion. We feel like the evidence says that in that 30 minute or less time period, the quicker you can get the patients to definitive care, the better it is for their outcome. TXA, two grams while en route. That's our internal tourniquet, our internal band-aid. Uh, needle thoracostomy, a lot of you listeners out there are still taught that second midclavicular line. Please, please, please move your Move your needles over to the anterior axillary or the mid-axillary line in the fourth or fifth intercostal space. 13% failure at the fourth intercostal space anterior axillary line as opposed to a 38% failure rate at the mid-clavicular line. That's three times, three times the failure rate if you're putting them in the front of the chest. So move, move laterally. Um, we've talked about EPIC a lot. EPIC will be linked in the show notes. This was really an impactful EMS study over the past decade probably goes on that list of impact studies that we talk about a lot. Dr. Jarvis's DSI study, the EPIC study is huge. It tells us what we probably all thought, confirms it, and probably what we thought was even worse. And that is single hypotensive episode, single hypoxic episode. If you have those two together in a traumatic brain injury patient, your odds ratio for mortality goes up 13 fold. That's huge. So we can control that. We should be trying to prevent that in that motorcycle flip patient, get those rule of 15s on early. That's not going to harm anything. You're going to prevent, prevent brain injury. You can always take them off. Yep. And lastly, warm your trauma patients. Cold trauma patients become coagulopathic trauma patients who head down the line towards DIC. Where does calcium fall in? We'll keep our eyes and ears open and wait for more evidence. And maybe one day that'll be in our, our trauma bundle protocol with TXA and freeze-dried plasma and the future will all be dancing around happily. As always, thanks for joining me today. Anything you want to add? No, I think that's a good good synopsis of the, the trauma serial killers, Casey. Thanks for coming. Well, we add this serial killers number five to the series. It's got, it's got a lot of heavy lifting to do if it's going to hang out with the other four. But y'all have liked these in the past. So please send us feedback. If you think there's a fifth killer or a sixth killer, we need to sub one out or add one on. Please send us a review or ideas or suggestions for future future casts at podcast at mchd-tx.org wherever you do listen please leave us reviews thanks for listening everybody we'll talk to you soon this podcast was brought to you by the montgomery county hospital district texas production and editing by andrew adams questions or comments which are always welcome can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts music copyright kevin mcleod and competech.com licensed under creative commons by attribution 3.0 Zero.